everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 293. So, what's new? Recorded July 9th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Ken Anderson, and Miles, the Aussie-Jeneer Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the faithful Opiites. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, it's hot. <laughs> Sorry, that's all I got today. So we went through the whole last show and didn't even mention Independence Day. Um, I hope that all of our listeners in the U.S. still have all their fingers, um, because apparently that's a thing. Um, just ask Jason Pierre-Paul of the NFL about that. But yeah, we had a had a good time, did some tailgating, uh, rained on us, but... You know, we're rednecks. We we roll with that. Rain just cools you down a little bit. So uh, um, I hope you guys had a had a wonderful celebration of um, our emancipation from our foreign dictator. Yeah, take that. Yay. <laughs> a friend of mine who's English uh, posted something on Facebook a couple of years ago. It was around Independence Day, and it was something like uh, – uh, uh, I'm going to ruin this, but it was like the United Kingdom responsible for Independence Day celebrations in over 130 countries. <laughs> Got to love that. Yeah, but that's, I do like that's good humor. I yeah. like that. So I just wanted to mention a couple bits of uh, media that I consumed uh, in recent days. Uh, the first is Glow on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. They've been advertising it really hard, like to the point of there were drive time billboards in Atlanta for this show. It's the first time I've seen uh, a Netflix billboard. Um, but it's about the eighties, uh, gorgeous ladies of wrestling that I remember from the eighties. Um, and so I turned it on just out of sheer curiosity and nostalgia. And the first episode, when it was over it, they're like 32 to 35 minutes long. When the first one was over, I was like, I didn't like that at all, but I'm intrigued. So then I watched the <laughs> second episode and I was like, well, I still don't think I liked it, but I kind of want to see more. And so all the way through, like it's 10 episodes, I finished the 10th episode going, okay, I kind of liked it okay, but it was really, it's, it's super character driven and it's bizarre uh, in that kind of uh, like um, Zucker Brothers uh, kind of Raising Arizona kind of bizarre where people say outlandish things in perfectly normal context and everybody around them accepts it. And I like that kind of thing, but again, it's so character driven. And some uh, two or three of the performances, including Mark Maron, um, who is a, is a well known podcaster, but I had never only ever seen him in Almost Famous, where he had a very small bit part. Um, oh, he has an IFC show. Okay, I mean, I, I know he's got stuff. That's just the only thing I'd ever seen him in. He was really solid, playing a really despicable guy, uh, but a guy who as as the the story unfolds he's his despicability despicable nature um becomes you you understand it a little more and it's like oh okay now you kind of feel sorry for him like that ugly puppy at the pound um at first you hate him yeah and then you kind of understand him uh very much not kid friendly the first couple of episodes are all tna uh and i'm sure that was just to hook guys who tuned in to a show called gorgeous ladies of wrestling uh, and they want to make them want to stick with with it through a very slow developing uh, character um, development process. But I'm actually looking forward to uh, the second season. So as weird as it was, uh, at, at the end, they had me. So 
Go. Gee, I only remember the 80s wrestling with like Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage and Jesse yeah. the Body Ventura and all that stuff. Yeah, That's it was the same it. crew. They just they wanted to get women into the act. And and oh. today women wrestle right alongside and even at the same time as men. Uh, but at the time that was kind of unheard of. It, uh, you know, a couple of guys would have their their chicks that followed them around. And so the same group, the WWF folks uh, at the time decided they would try this uh, all women's wrestling and it only lasted a couple of seasons it wasn't super popular uh, but it was all out you know all the 80s cheese big hair and leather pants and spandex all over the place and it was just all an excuse to to show women in tight clothes uh, but some of the wrestling was actually pretty good and actually toward the end of this uh, Netflix docudrama thing um, uh, the wrestling actually gets pretty good so if you're a wrestling fan you can enjoy it if you're a fan of dark comedy you can enjoy it if you're a fan of tna you can enjoy it so there's lots of things to like about it hmm. not big with the feminists i guess <laughs> well amazingly it is a very feminist message at the end i mean all the way through you see these women there is a there is an undercurrent of empowerment there so it's just it's hard to describe it's not as weird as legion um but it's it's weird in the sense of it's kind of hard to put it in one hole you know, you can't you can't pigeonhole it easily. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not really recommending it. It's not for everybody. But if you're open minded and and willing to you know um, explore the process a little bit rather than just it's not one where you can just turn your mind off and, and enjoy uh, mindless in, uh, in entertainment. It's just it's not that which is what you'd expect from the concept of gorgeous ladies of wrestling. But it's it's much deeper than that, and I enjoyed it. Oh, explore the process mark that's uh <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm too much of a movie geek um and the second one that that i saw just yesterday despicable me three was so disappointing and 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 it, it wasn't a bad movie on a scale of one to ten it's a it's a solid a you know it's a it's a b minus b plus uh, b movie you know somewhere in that area but it didn't have the wit and the charm and the humor and the working on multiple levels that the other two did. And Minions, you know, it was kind of a different thing, but it was really good too. Um, but Despicable Me 3 was just at the, at one point, I literally was almost falling asleep. It was boring. And, and when it was all over, I turned to my 12 year old and, and I said, what'd you think? She said it was good, but kind of boring. So she, she had the same sort of thing. So anyway, uh, a couple of people I've talked to just really absolutely loved it. Um, but, and, and like I said, it's a, it's a decent movie, but it, if you're looking for a continuation of the charm of the first two, it's just not there. No way. They sold out just to market toys. Come on, Mark. <laughs> what, what movie series would ever do that? So I got yeah. a question. What is the percentage of time that they put a number on the end of a movie title and it sucks? Oh, it's in the high eighties. It's yeah. gotta be right. Yeah. It's got to be. Roll the dice. You're being, you're being generous, Mark. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, like Rocky 2 was better than, well, not not better. It was higher production values than the first Rocky. Rocky 4 was the best of the series. So, you know, that that one that, uh, continued on. Uh, you know, Star Wars, the episodes, uh, different episodes had numbers, and, and the second one, Empire, was better than the first one. But it wasn't called Star Wars 2, actually, now that I think about it. It was called Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back. It wasn't until they stuck numbers on them that they started to suck. Episode one, two, and three. Hmm. Right. Miles, you, hmm. you may be onto something. Hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And Star Trek is kind of a weird one because it does half of them suck and half of them are genius. (laughs) The whole even odd thing. Right. uh, If you're into that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, Ghostbusters 2 was a great letdown. Uh, You know, if they ever make a sequel to Independence Day, I'm sure it will be a letdown. (laughs) I think it all started Uh, when the first the first sequel to Rambo came out. Yeah, I don't. Do you remember that movie? I loved that movie when it first came out. I thought that was an original story. I didn't know much about Stallone. I just thought the whole thing was like an over the top crazy story, and I really got hooked on it. And then the second they did a sequel, it's like, I'm sorry. Now any sequel of any movie is is dead to me. I don't want to. Well, it was a whole different thing. I mean, the first one was you know post traumatic stress disorder and dealing with coming back to a world that didn't want you, and then the second one was Superman wearing camo. Yeah. yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> Actually, the movie Rambo that came out a couple of years ago was a better sequel to First Blood than the uh, Rambo 2 and 3 that came out. Um, in a lot of ways, you could look at the the last one has almost a direct sequel to the first one and just forget those other two even existed and you know those two together that's like a that's a that's a thing of a sequel done 30 oh my gosh 30 years later yeah what, wait when did rambo come out or first blood it was like 78 the 80s yeah like yeah, 70s, so, early 80s yeah yeah so that's like 30 years later and it it was i mean okay i you know a little bit obviously it's unbelievable but i thought it was a far better movie than I was expecting. I haven't seen it, so I can't comment, but it wouldn't be hard to be a far better movie than I'm expecting. Well, that's true. So, but you know, if, if you think of it as this is a direct sequel to the first one, it makes it even better. I think. All right. Okay. I might, I'm going to look it up now because I kind of gave up after the second, well, I don't know what you call it. Rambo two. I don't know what you call it. The second yeah. one, when they all got crazy and went off into, what was it, like Afghanistan or something? Yeah. Yeah, two and three were kind of a package deal, um, you know, in much the same way that Back to the Future two and three were a package deal. Um, but one and the, the, this one years later, actually, the more I think about it, the more they work better together. Hmm. Yeah, Stallone started out doing... Uh, gritty human stories and then became, you know, a Ken doll. Uh, and everything he did from there on after, he's been trying to be taken seriously again and it just has never worked. Yeah. But, you know, hey, 80s. he made, you know, he made his money so he can do whatever right. he wants. He, now, he made so. millions, possibly billions of dollars um, and got to go every day and, and make a living doing the thing he loved. Uh, I'm not mad at him. But it was definite, yeah, he, definite yeah. arc in his career pre and post plastic surgery. It's easy to forget, yeah. though, that he wrote the Rocky story. Right. And that, I mean, that's a lot of genius in that. Yes. So it's a, it's a crazy thing to think that he wrote it. I mean, I think of him as this, you know, meat guy, <laughs> you know, with meathead guy, right. you know, beats up everything in his sight. But no, this guy's like really super smart. Right. And the, one of the pivotal scenes in that one where the where it's just him and Adrian in the apartment and he's talking about, you know, I, I got to know uh, who I am. Uh, that actually wasn't in the movie. After everything was shooting, he decided the movie needed more. And he went back and rewrote that and paid for 
like a day of studio on his own, out of his own pocket, because the studio wouldn't pay for it, and had it stuck in there. And the movie would have been so much less without that, which goes back to your genius, the understanding of how story works. Um, he was really a very smart guy who also happened to be able to bench press a small bus. Yeah. Can you imagine if Burt Reynolds would have been Rocky Balboa? <laughs> no, the- I can't imagine that. <laughs> That's who the studio right. wanted to play. And, you know, and Burt Reynolds is a great actor, especially back then. He, that was when he was at his top of his game. But it would have it would have destroyed the movie. Um, <laughs> yo, yo, Adrian. Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I don't know. It, it just wouldn't work. You'd have to have a really cool car, though, you know. That always went with Burt Reynolds, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um. All right, so other than being really hot in the desert, you too have consumed some media miles, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, actually, I did this on a plane a couple of weeks back. I binge-watched the rest of Legion. I got, you know, I, I got three episodes in. You, you got through the whole lot, and so I'm like, okay, it's in my queue, right? I've got to get to it, and I've got to get to it. Never had time. Eventually got time, got to it, and I had very much the same reaction. It kind of, it was a really curious beginning, and it got, very interesting two, three or four episodes in. And then it kind of got into the doldrums a little bit. And right towards the end of that series, and I'm not going to do any spoilers because people will kill me, but the the whole underpinning story really came out about mm-hmm. this guy. And when that happened, everything clicked. And at that point, oh, yeah, uh, it was very cool. And yeah. I... Honestly, did not see that ending coming at all. Yeah, you had to pay your dues to get through the weird for it to pay off. They had to yeah. take you through Pan's Labyrinth before that that payoff is worth the effort. And when it is, when it all when that last tumbler clicks into place and the lock opens, you're like, oh, brilliance! Um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. They did. I mean, the only criticism I'd have is they did kind of over focus on his dysfunction. Right. I thought, um, but you started to understand why towards the end. Yeah. But um, in general, yeah, really very, very solid series. And I'll be looking out for the second one. Yeah. It's uh, I generally hate exposition in any movie. It's the laziest way to tell a story. When a guy is just telling you what happened, uh, it's the laziest way to do it. And one of the, like this second to the last or third to the last episodes is entirely exposition, but the way they do it is so brilliant and so creative that it's entertaining and it's it's not just him telling the story it's him figuring out the story as we're figuring out the story and so it, it, you're you're a participant in it instead of just a recipient of it um and that's that's the best bit of storytelling as, as just standard lecture i mean literally it's in a lecture hall uh it's the best example of of lecture in movie that actually works that i can think of mm, yeah you're right i mean they started to do that with i think second series of mr robot it was the same sort of thing you started to realize how crazy um, you know, the main character kind of was or is and that you don't really understand whether the story is coming from a sane position or an insane position, um, but it is intriguing to see it play out and it evolve, whether it be through a weird, insane perception of things or a sane perception of things. Anyway, the whole thing is makes a story interesting. Um, if it gets too complicated and you kind of blink and miss something, sometimes you've got to go back and revisit, well, I'm not getting this, maybe I missed something, and then you find out what it is and click and it all comes together again. But, yeah, I enjoyed it. 
All right. Um, so moving on, uh, when while we're in this in the area, I'm sorry, I'm trying to talk in the chat room and talk on mic, and it's just not working. Um, uh, while we're talking about media, I got a, an email from PlayStation or from Sony saying that PlayStation View is no longer a good deal. Um, I, I was on the the slim package, which was ten twenty nine ninety nine, thirty bucks a month, uh, and I got an email. End of uh, end of June, somewhere around there, I got an email that said, uh, you have been upgraded to the next level. You know, we hope you enjoy the upgrade. Um, and then a couple of weeks after that, I got an email saying, the one that we upgraded you from is going away, and all of our plans now are going up $10 more. So my $30 plan is now a $40 plan. It's, I'm not complaining about it, but it's no longer a bargain. $40 is what I'd expect to pay uh, for, you know, for cable, for anything else. And so now that's what I'm paying for a cableless cable. It's, I, I'm not mad at it, but it's not a deal anymore. Wow. Yeah. That is getting basic cable pricing. Right. Have you looked at, what is it? Oh, never mind. I Sling TV? Uh, yeah. I think that's the yeah. one. So there's Direct TV now, there's Sling TV, and there's YouTube TV. Um, to, to put together the problem with sling TV, and that's where I started before I transitioned to PlayStation view, uh, is, um, to get the channels I want, the things that are important to me, Disney, for example, um, being important for my kids, uh, I have to go to the single stream only option. Disney won't allow multi-stream, so I can't have more than one device watching, uh, sling and, and they won't do it, uh, for like this channel, like only Disney is on one device. You have to switch your whole account over to only one device at a time if you want Disney. Um, and also, when when I put together the packages of the stuff I want, and that's that's the way tiered pricing always works. They know that everybody wants you know ESPN or Discovery or Food Network or DIY, and they take these things that that they know people want and they bundle them with a bunch of crap nobody else wants. So in order to get the bundle that I would want from Sling TV. It'd be forty bucks a month, so I'm not saving any money, um, right? And you know, at least PlayStation, I, I kind of have appreciated their honesty about it. Like here, here's the here's the minimum bundle we can offer you, and take it or leave it. Uh, and other people have tried to play a shell game, saying, "Hey, it's only twenty dollars a month, unless you actually want to watch something." And then it's a five dollar right. add on, and then a ten dollar dollar add on, and then a seven fifty add on. Um, but you know, that, uh, cable is winning, even though they're they're not cable anymore. The the companies that make up the cable cartel are putting enough pressure on these these things that they're winning. And so cable is no uh, cable less uh, cord cutting is no longer less expensive than cable. So therefore, no reason not to have cable. There's got to be. We've got to find a way to make this work. I mean, it, you're right. It's getting harder and harder. I mean, it seems like every day I hear in the news about somebody trying to ban Cody boxes or, you know, the, the, some, the M RIAA or MPAA or whoever it is going after all of these add-ons for Cody and, and all that sort of stuff, which were, you know, to be honest, in most cases were filling voids that were not being served by cable companies and distribution on the internet, which most people would probably be happy to pay for. But until they get out of this bundled model, which works great if you've got a cable subscription or a satellite, and they get into a kind of a pick your channels and pay for the ones you want, 
I don't know. It's. I think it will eventually happen. I mean, they're threatened by Netflix. They're threatened by Amazon Prime Video. They're threatened by all these uh, internet-based services. They're going to have to, but at some point, deal with it. As long as they have the last mile for the overwhelming majority of the country, it, and as long as they keep raking us over to take our money and to turn around and give it of course i'm not saying they give it to the lawmakers in washington for the sole reason of getting favorable legislations and regulatory environments i'm just simply saying based on the evidence you couldn't prove that's not the case but as long as those two factors exist you're why why is it going to change oh hey let me help you make me have to do twice as much work for half the money. I think that's fair. I mean, you know what? I mean, we let them get to their big, I, I understand they're not technically a monopoly, but functionally they, an ogolopoly, that word I can't really say, you know, they, they have that. And so they're not going to give up their seat at the table just so they have to do more work. And we're too lazy and we lack the discipline has a consumer base to force them to that situation um, would to make them give the consumers a seat at the table. But, well, and so they're happy. You well, know? And, and even despite of all that, it's just plain old market logistics. If, if you let everybody go a la carte and buy what they want and pay for what they want, Bravo would go from 30 million subscribers to 300. Um, and you know, that's just, that's a property that's going to cease to exist. There are lots of properties out there that are buttressed by the, the bundling program. And that's why Viacom can own 16 channels, right? They make sure that all of their channels, uh, get, you know, bundled together and, and it's the economics don't work for an a la carte model. Uh, and that's why they're, you know, they're just, you're going after everything you can, uh, everything they can, cause they're, they're trying to protect their business uh, model and and it's going to fail in the end but you know like you like you alluded to Seth they have been you know systematically screwing their customers for so long they don't know how to compete anymore so yes, all they know how to do is just you know continue to to berate their own people well it's one of those things that on on when the statement on the face of it doesn't make sense but big businesses are some of the most anti-capitalistic organizations on the face of the earth because they have they have scaled the wall and then they turn around and look at everybody coming up after them and begin to knock ladders and ropes off to make it twice as hard for the second person to get up the cliff and we're okay with it you know, and you could say, oh, well, everybody, everybody hates it. Well, how hard is it to click a button that says, I think they're bad versus, you know, they are so corrupt. I would rather, you know, just, I would rather get an antenna and be stuck with the three or four stations I get than pay their crap. We don't, we want to, we want that stuff more than we dislike the way they do it so in a sense we gave them the power to treat us this way and then we're mad they're using the very power we gave in much the same way that they give people bandwidth and then get mad when they use it and if i had a good story queued up this would be an awesome way to tie into (laughs) data caps because they're penalizing us for doing the same behavior they do every day it's, it's generational though, right? Like my daughter's moving from one apartment uh, for the new school year at college to another one. And, uh, you know, we bought her a nice 
two-inch TV and the whole bit because the previous place had cable and everything. And, and I was talking to her the other day and I said, okay, so with this new place that you're going to, do they have similar cable? Do I need to get any, any extra hardware or something to plug your TV in your new room? She goes, uh, I don't know, but I don't watch TV. I'm like, what do you mean you don't watch TV? She says, I have no interest in watching TV at all. Right. And then I realized, you know, yeah, you and all of your friends are all the same. They don't watch the TV like we do. And that's okay. But it, I guess it means that their generation is not going to be paying for Bravo and they're going to pay for Discovery and they're not going to pay for, you know, Animal Planet and MTV and every other channel, which we've just grown accustomed to. And so the cable companies know that the end is nigh. It's just they want to milk every dime they can get out of it as long as possible before they actually have to go and earn a living for a change. Well, there are lots of... I'm sorry, Seth. Go ahead. Go go ahead. No, you go ahead, Mark. I'll just say there are lots of models of businesses that are in that same boat right now. I mean, we've talked about uh, the Google built their empire on advertising. The, The way that advertising works isn't working anymore. That's an entire industry, one of the pillars of, of global capitalism that is collapsing. Uh, media consumption, again, it's the same thing. We're not doing it in the same that we, way that we've always done it, and it's going to collapse. And, and as Seth said, uh, once you have reached a certain point, um, you don't innovate anymore. You're not interested in innovating. You're interested in protecting. And that's why Microsoft is now you know, a slumbering giant. They innovated for two decades and then stopped because they didn't have to anymore. And then they just became a bully. And we're seeing this as the decade of the bullies. Yeah, and that. it's also going to make it more expensive on the people who keep doing it because, you know, the the executives aren't going to take a pay cut. They're not going to take smaller bonuses. They can only cut the wages of those beneath them for so much. And so has the pool of paying customers dwindles, the price is going to go up. It's one of those things if if let's say half the country tomorrow goes solar and goes off grid. Well, guess what? You still got to maintain the infrastructure, and that means the price is going to double for everybody else. Or the price won't double. In electricity, there will be a um, a, a line charge or, or a fee charge, you know, so they'll make it up in other ways. So it's just it's bad news for everybody because they're holding on to these outdated models and forcing us to, you know, we can either take the knife or if we protect ourselves, we're allowing our neighbors to get knifed in the back. And, you know, it's really uh, the American consumer industry has become a great big game of survivor it's yeah. out with outlast and outplay you know playing the the comp we're trying to play the companies off against each other and the companies are trying to play the consumers off against each other and you know the winner is the banks yeah. you know who are financing loans and mortgages and holding all these ridiculous amounts of money i think the the next big player and i mentioned them last week tivo uh, somebody like TiVo needs to do what the magic of TiVo was not their hardware, but their software. Uh, they had a good guide system. They aggregated, disaggregated things. They brought it all together in a simple, easy to understand thing. You didn't need to know what time uh, uh, insert show here that would would make you chuckle because I can't come up with anything. Golden Girls. There we go. You don't need to know what time Golden Girls is on. You just say search Golden Girls and it finds it. Um, somebody, some company, and again, I think TiVo would be the natural um, uh, person to do that, the natural company to do that, needs to just build an aggregator that scrapes web content 
and scrapes uh, public uh, broadcast content. And and like Food Network, for example, puts uh, a lot of their content on their website for free. You just go log on and you have to watch ads and, and, and it's, it's all it's there. Uh, so some, some company just needs to build an aggregator that when you say, I want to watch Cutthroat Kitchen, it goes out and, and as the, the new Cutthroat Kitchen is out there, it br- brings it to you and you click on it there and you watch it. You don't, it it's going to be delayed. You're not going to watch it uh, live. Uh, but most people, most cord cutters aren't interested in watching it as it's on. I, I almost never watch anything when it's on. I watch it after you know a day or two or, or sometimes just an hour or two, but I almost always watch everything after it happens. So an aggregator like that with a Roku app and call it $5 a month for the service um, is what we need right now. Just, just get, g- gathering and bringing together things that are publicly available and already free uh, like TiVo made their, their money doing. I'd be up for that. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And the user interface, I have a Tableau uh, device for the over-the-air stuff. Love it. It's absolutely great. It does all of that stuff, reliable, brilliant quality, doesn't cost me a thing to get the content. It's great. But that's network television, and it, it means that I've got to open their app up to see the network television feeds that have come in. Meanwhile, the subscription stuff like the Discovery and the – you know, and sports and stuff like that, which come on different feeds, is a different app experience that I've got to go and get. Um, and it's confusing. And it, look, I can deal with it. I'm a software engineer. I'm used to complexity. But my wife doesn't want to deal with it. And maybe my daughter doesn't feel like she needs to be dealing with it. And at some point, just a single one interface that can aggregate everything in one place would be the answer to all these problems. I'm sure somebody wants to do it, but they're just battling up against copyright and legislation and turf wars and everything else, and they're probably just giving up. And that's one of the things that PlayStation View does well. Not only does it have its own DVR, but it covertly pretends to be a DVR when it's really just scraping somebody else's website, and and it calls it a VOD, video in the van. Um, But... You know, you have to for a lot of those things. Well, the thing that I left out the first time is for a lot. Of, if you go to discovery for example, to watch Deadliest Catch, um, most of the time you're going to have to log in with a cable subscription, and PlayStation View was the cable subscription that allowed you to do that. And again, that's the hook. And I don't know. I can't honestly understand why it's there, other than a line in a contract somewhere that says you're a cable service. Uh, you can't make your programming available to people that don't have cable um so it's it all comes back to those carriage contracts and that's until those go away until we come up with a new way to fix that the 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 tableaus and the tivos and the playstation views are all going to have to be playing by the old rules how much is this a a first world or american problem you know we have so conquered nature and conquered the economy that we have all this free time to sit around and gripe and whine and moan about how hard it is for us to waste our life on leisure activity of watching television or, you know, and again, you're not watching TV, you're watching content over the airwaves or over the internet or, or, you know, whatever, but talk about a first world problem, you know, somebody, it's just weird. Back to Miles' point, it's not just first world; it's first world forty-year-olds and older. Um, the The problem is going to go. The, the audience is going to disappear before the the contracts are resolved. 
Yeah, I've gone to different countries before where you go from having hundreds of TV channels in the US to having five. And all of a sudden, television takes on a whole different, you know, position of in your life. It's not, well, you've got five channels. I mean, you watch a few shows. And then you find yourself sitting in front of the box going, this is a really awful experience. And then you think, hang on a minute, maybe I was addicted to a TV before. Maybe I didn't need to have hundreds of channels before because I, what I did because I didn't have the channels, I went outside and I read books and I rode my bike and I went to the gym and I hung out with friends and, and all of a sudden you don't need the TV and then you think, huh, I don't really miss it. I miss certain shows, you know, certain exper- you know, experience-oriented shows that were really cool and you really wanted to watch. You find a way to watch those. You go to your, you know, DVDs or Netflix or whatever. But um, for general sort of fill-in-the-gaps TV, it's kind of addiction. And if you can break it, it's not that bad. It's just a bit of a – it's like any change. There's a bit of anxiety associated with that. But once you get through it, it's not so bad. You know, I myself, I watch 10 shows a week, but the TVs in my home broadcast hundreds of shows a week. It's just background radiation. It's always on. Um, and so I think maybe at that point, it doesn't matter what's on. I don't know. We have lots of conversations about TV for, you know, and I know I don't necessarily care a lot about TV. I just know it's a, it's a thing that, that people my age and my station in life care about. So I, I talk about it a lot, but Maybe maybe you're right, Seth. Maybe this whole discussion is just pointless. Yeah, I, I was I was building towards the addictive point that Miles yeah. made for me. So um, yeah, interesting. You know, uh, so when I try to stuff. when I try to get away from the TV, um, you know, I, like I said, I, I watch a couple of maybe ten shows a week. Let's call that two a day on a, on a weeknight. So you know, let's say that's two hours a day of TV uh, in my spare time. Um, I don't have a whole lot of spare time by the time I get home from work and whatever, you know, we're looking at maybe five hours of, of non expectation time total, uh, you know, and, and some of mine are that is brushing teeth and, and showering and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but when I try to get away from the TV, I try to, to, to do other interesting things. And something I've talked about recently is, uh, the woodworking experience that I've been trying to do. I was trying to, I'm still working on this, uh, kitchen Island butcher block thing for my wife um and i have just decided that wood hates me um <laughs> and that uh it's not that i'm incompetent it's not that uh poor workmanship abounds uh, those are truth statements uh but it's just that wood in general hates me um today i had to cut uh one of the final pieces of some very expensive like 20 dollar per foot wood uh that i'm just doing a small uh outline around the the island top um just to to give it a little uh you know uh elegance a little um decadence if you would uh and i knew this was expensive wood and i had bought enough to make a couple of wrong cuts you know total um but i didn't i couldn't afford to just like buy a lot of extra so i it was a tricky compound miter cut on my saw uh so i was uh very carefully practicing on cheap pieces of pine uh, you know two by fours things like that i made about 10 practice cuts and I can, could consistently get it right every time. And then I moved to the expensive stuff and I cut it two inches too short. And not even two inches, it's like an, a half an inch too short. Um, and it's like, okay, fine. I can, I can, I, I had enough to spare. 
I can do this again. So I went back to the pine and, and, and tried to figure out how, you know, tried to make it do. And I, I mocked it up and, and did everything. And then I made uh, another expensive uh, wood cut and I was now a quarter inch too short. And now I don't have enough wood to finish the product the project. I have to stop and I have to either find some specialty shop in Atlanta that has what I want or wait 10 days to get another eight foot stick of one by three in because wood hates me. <laughs> and it was supposed to be a Mother's Day present, which has long come, long come and gone. And now it's it's going to be a mother's uh, a birthday present for my wife, which is Tuesday. It's still going to be a Mother's it's still Day present, Mark. <laughs> to be a Christmas present now, um, because another you know I was also making I, I had uh, laminated several uh, strips of wood to make a butcher block top, and and as you know when you do that you have sort of jagged ends hanging off and so i had cut that to length and but in on my on my table saw i I made a slightly jagged cut so i was cleaning it up with the handsaw i had clamped down a a a a fence and everything was good i was going to make a nice clean straight line and i did except the sawtooth snagged and about a three-quarter inch chip came out of the top of one of the pieces of wood well i was straight but i chipped the wood so I had no choice then but to, to go over about three quarters of an inch and cut that off. So now the whole length is now three quarters of an inch shorter than I wanted it to be anyway. Not a big deal. You know, I was aiming for 42 inches. Now it's going to be 41 and a quarter inches. I can live with that. That's fine. But then after having done that and then having ruined a very expensive piece of wood, I just dropped the saw on the floor. I didn't even put it away. Walked away. I'm done. I, I will come back to this some other time. I'm done. Can I make a prediction? Okay. Okay. I predict you will buy a 3D uh, printer one of these days. (laughs) And have the same experience? No, no, no. Because, uh, you know, because you do it all on the computer screen with some CAD program and everything's perfect. And then you press the button and then come back eight hours later and the thing's built what you wanted. And it's usually picture perfect. Yeah. As as I've said many times before, the object is not to, to have it. It's to have made it. Um, for what I have spent on lumber for making this 24 by 42 island, I could have gone to lumber liquidators and bought five pieces of, of uh, hardwood maple butcher block already made. Again, it's not, it's not about having, it's about having made. But I'm almost at the point now, you know, it's, I, I expect a project I'm doing myself to cost about three times as much as one I could buy. Um, but now we're getting into the, like the four and five times as much. And so it's at this point, I'm just going to go, I should have bought a, a kitchen cabinet and a butcher block from, you know, uh, lumber liquidator sends me the butcher block home Depot sends me the kitchen cabinet. I could have put it together in 20 minutes and done, but no, I decided to do it all by myself and hand do it with, with all my own, um, engineering and ingenuity. And yeah, I'm three months behind schedule and over budget. <laughs> You'll get a laser cutter too. <laughs> I know you will. <laughs> uh, so anyway, could be worse. Uh, Might not know how, but it could be worse. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I'm enjoying it for the most part. <laughs> it's it's a it's a whole learning experience. I, I initially, I had to scrap the design I wanted. I, I initially had planned this really intricate puzzle piece butcher block thing. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know, I've never made butcher blocks, so let's go ahead and just do super complex. Uh, I, I have made a couple of cutting boards in the past, but nothing this big. And eventually I just scrapped that and I have some really high quality pieces of, of 
scrap wood laying around in my shop now. Um, and I had to buy all new wood and start over. Uh, it's frustrating. This so, is why God invented Ikea. Yes. This is the pain of the maker. So I'm not just a consumer uh, who sits and watches television. I try to make things. And, and by trying, I mean I fail more often than not. So if you're out there trying to make something and failing, you can commiserate with me a little bit. <laughs> uh, and then, Miles, I'm almost afraid to, to let you start on this. But we've, we've already been talking about, you know, in many ways, the American public has gotten what they deserve. Let's talk about taxes a little bit. I'll, I'll try and I'll do a. How about we do this? I'll do a preface to the problem, and if you guys want to go with it, go for it. And if not, that's fine too. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, taxes. So okay, on uh, Independence Day, I thought I'd have the day off. So what happened was I sit myself down in front of the TV as you know as you would do first thing in the morning. And uh, I got one of those YouTube apps on my NVIDIA. So I went into YouTube. What do you got for me today, YouTube? Because normally it works out what, you know, what you've been watching, so it suggests all these shows. Well, um, there's a, uh, a group out of Connecticut who have a YouTube channel. They're called IRS Medic. Now, this is not the sort of thing most people do in their spare time is, you know, check out tax law. Oh, yeah, that's fun. I should get a life. Anyway, anyway, I must have been looking something up, and, and a couple of their shows came across my radar. Well, I had mentioned to you guys uh, in the past that you know one of the limitations that we uh, we U.S. Uh, citizenry have is that when you become a U.S. citizen, whether it be by naturalization or by birth or, or for whatever reason, um, the IRS and the U.S. government effectively owns you to the rest to the end of your life, no matter where you are on planet Earth whatever money you make in Zimbabwe or Mongolia or wherever, uh, you have to report that to the IRS. You have no choice. It doesn't matter where you live. You have to report it. Um, it's kind of messed up because no other country that I know of, I'm sure there is probably one other, but no other country that I know of actually does it that way. They base it, uh, taxes on your residency where you live. Well, I'll tell you how this kind of works out that, that's uh, an interesting one. Uh, if you let's say, for example, you you're working for a company, and that company decides they're going to open an office in Abu Dhabi, and they send you over there for six months to help set the office up, or maybe you're a contractor and you go over there to do some work, or anyway, you find yourself in another country. Um, when you're in that other country, if you buy anything substantial, and I'm talking, you know, ten thousand dollars or more, that could be a car or a house some stocks and bonds, a bank account, whatever it might be, uh, you're obligated to report that back to the IRS, actually back to the Treasury Department. Um, and it's uh, you, there's certain forms and all this paperwork and crap that, you know, accountants probably love, and for me it just gives me a headache. But anyway, uh, you, you're supposed to report it. So what happens is a lot of people who get stationed in other countries, U.S. citizens, find it very, very difficult to actually exist in those countries. They can't, uh, they have a hard time buying things because if they don't report it, the onus is upon the country, the bank in the country, for example, to report it back to the IRS on their behalf. And that bank in Austria or that bank in Argentina or whatever, they don't want to be reporting to the IRS stuff. I mean, what, what, that was, that's not, they're not the IRS's bookkeeper or, you know, information agent. 
but apparently this is how it works. So um, a lot of US people can't get, they can't buy things overseas. Uh, they can't get bank accounts. They can't buy real estate. There's all these hoops they have to jump through. Well, apparently it works in reverse too. I find out as I'm sitting around on 4th of July watching these YouTube videos that there's this thing that happens uh, in Australia where I'm from and where my wife is from uh, called superannuation. Superannuation is like a 401k or an IRA you know, as a retirement fund. And uh, in some countries uh, – Australia particularly, they mandate that an employer has to deduct a certain percentage of your salary and put it into one of these mandated retirement programs. You don't have a choice. Um, well, I never – I've always worked for myself. I've been very self-employed almost since I was a kid. So I never had to deal with this. But my wife is a registered nurse, and back in the 90s, she was working in Australia for the government – uh, you know, a government hospital, and also for a private agency as well. And uh, unbeknownst to me, we find out that she had had money deducted and put away in a retirement fund for her. Well, apparently, you're supposed to report that stuff to the U.S. Treasury because it's an offshore asset. And it's, again, it's a U.S. thing. So when she became a citizen, she got obligated to report this thing. Well, we didn't realize that included retirement programs. And here's where it's really messed up. Certain countries have treaties that exempts them from having to do that. Canada, for example, you don't have to do that. But in Australia, you do. And there's a tax treaty which is really badly negotiated that forces Australians to have to report this mandatory deducted earnings back to the government. And if you yourself don't report it, guess what the fine is? It's approximately $20,000 per year that you didn't report it, going back to, in our case, about the year 2000. <laughs> so you owe a million dollars. <laughs> Somewhat. I mean, well, it, yeah, kind of. Well, that's what I was thinking. That's how my 4th of July began. Oh, welcome. Happy Independence Day, Miles. You owe a million dollars. What? <laughs> Can you imagine how you freak out about this all because of this thing that happened to my wife in the 90s that she had no control over and a, and a government that says no we own you and you've got to tell us everything that ever happened on this on the place of the earth that you have any association with so um anyway long and the short of it is i ended up reaching out to some very 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 expensive tax attorneys who found out what went on said yeah we deal with this all the time and this is what you do, and no, there is no penalty, and here, pay me 1500 bucks, and the problem goes away. Okay, I guess that's what you have to do these days. My question is, WTF? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, this is insane. How can anybody in America do business with any other country in which you have to do a fiscal transaction and know how to deal with all, all of this, I, I leave you with that statement, talk among yourselves. Well, it goes, this line of thinking goes, you know, way back uh, to the Mon Monroe Doctrine and even before of, of uh, American isolationism. If you're an American, you, you spend your money in America, you make your money in America, and if you don't, we're going to punish you for it. Um, and somewhere along the line, I, I, I can't, I'm not a student enough of history to tell when it happened, but somewhere along the line, the idea of of uh, 
modifying behavior by ta- the tax code became the de rigueur. It was it was just what you did. You know, originally taxes were just for uh, infrastructure and and armies and that sort of stuff. And and it, it wasn't about modifying your behavior. It was just about raising funds. Um, and of course, that was no less fraught with corruption. Anytime you have people and money in the same sentence, uh, there's going to be corruption. But at least it was pretty straightforward. Uh, you have X amount of taxes due, and, and you know, in certain countries at certain times in history, X amount was 100. percent You know, I'm the king. I own everything. I will give you back some of your crops after I take what I want. But you know, in in at least in America, we've always had a more uh, a representative way of doing things, but somewhere along the line, it became okay to modify behavior. And I honestly think that's what this comes down to. This is a behavior modification technique. They don't want you working in other countries. They don't want you benefiting other economies. Um, and so the, the tax law is built in such a way as you are punished for being a citizen of the world, as opposed to a citizen of the U S I don't think that's the case. I think it's the case that, hey, we're the biggest economy in the world, and if you want to have any shot of doing any business on our shores, it's up to you to make sure anybody from us who comes over there gets reported back to us. I just think it's a case where we were the biggest, and we just flouted it, and nobody else had the choice but to do it, because who... And, you know, granted, America today is full of debt, and in a lot of ways, we're the biggest beggar on the block, but used to, America had over 90% of the wealth of the world, and what country wouldn't jump through any hoop you set up to have a chance to get in and get their share of the pie? And so, you know, I think... You know, it used to be when the when America sneezed, the rest of the world caught code or caught a cold and things like that. And you know, and it's still pretty big, but there's a lot of other big economies out there now, and it's just the remnant of the system. I think. I don't think it's uh, trying to change behavior as much as it's you know lazy Americans wanting the rest of the world to do our work. I mean, come on, Mark, that fits more in line with the American ethos <laughs> than anything else. Well, this this is exactly why cryptocurrencies, for example, uh, frighten so many people. As we become a non-governmental, uh, non-governmental global economy, governments lose control. And if you're in government, control is your entire reason for being. Um, and so I, it, it certainly makes sense that these sort of things would frighten people. But also, it's it's you know it's the ultimate in democratization. It's going to to save uh, citizens of every country from their from their government, but also take away any uh, protections that may be offered as well. It's it's a brave new world in a lot of different ways, and I think um, in the same like we were just talking about the the cable companies recognized that their days are numbered. I think governments across the world and and tax levying agencies across the world are beginning to realize that their days are numbered. And they're every bit as frightened. And and when you start to uh, sense the the curtain drawing around you, the natural human instinct is to exert more control. And and that's we're seeing that happen. It, it's a bit scary though, because I mean, look, this money was made from her thirty. Well, no, was it thirty? No, it was about about probably ten years before she came to this country and twenty years before she became a citizen of this country. They have no right to that. 
That's history that they had no, no association with at all. And yet there is a responsibility on our part every year to report that we own something somewhere else, even though they have no right to it. And, and the, the crazy thing about it is it's just paperwork, but just paperwork with all of the you know, fine print and the, and the complication, the forms on forms on forms, is an ongoing cost of administration which goes to pay accountants and tax attorneys. Additionally, the problem is that it's not so much that if you earn money in another country, that if you pay tax in that country locally on it, they credit you for that amount. And as long as the taxes you pay overseas are more than you would pay in the US to earn the same money, you probably end up paying them nothing. So what you end up doing is spending thousands and thousands of dollars to satisfy a Big Brother-esque paperwork requirement that gets no one anything. I mean, you're already paying the oh, tax. That's not true. It gets government bureaucracies power. That, yeah, that's power. the purpose of it. Correct. Correct. But we're burdened with the cost of actually giving them that power. And uh, it, it, it also, here's the other downside of this. If you're, uh, let's say you're a US bank, like you're JP Morgan or Chase or Citi or one of these big banks, and you want to do business overseas, your cost to do that business for compliance could make you completely uh, not an attractive or economical option to a bank out of, say, China or Korea or somewhere else who isn't in the same boat and doesn't have to go through the same compliance. And so, therefore, you maybe you lose business because you can't afford to do business with, I don't know, Iceland or whoever. Um, that can't help. If you're not making money, then no one wins. So, I don't know. I'm... It's a bit of Big Brother. It's tax. Well, there is actually no taxes due here because there's no taxes to be paid. Uh, it's, it's just all about Big Brother reporting. Paperwork to be filed. Yeah. yeah, it's paperwork. It's crazy. Yeah, mo money to be spent. It's, I mean, you know, look, all of those people out there who depend on you, Miles, for, your, for their food stamps and their <laughs> welfare checks – that money has to come into the government some way. And so if it is filing fees, you know, and application processing fees, you know, you're not being taxed. That's just the cost of business. So you should be thankful that you are getting the chance to help out your brothers and sisters in need who um, are unable to to detach their backside from the couch and do it themselves because think of the hard work they have to figure out figuring should i get the playstation view or go with the basic package <laughs> or cable or maybe i actually need youtube red now you can't work through all of those things if you're having to look for a job or god forbid work at mcdonald's and learn how to say would you like fries with that i mean come on miles quit being selfish well i know but I, I, well, okay. Another look. I'll open up this Pandora's box since but, we're on the. But the, before you go, go there, go I, I, very quick statement. Um, recently, I have begun to take note of the service I get at you mentioned McDonald's uh, at places like that, and I have come to the unmistakable, unalterable conclusion that those people are minimum wage workers because they're not worth anything more, and they will never be. And minimum wage is not supposed to be a livable wage. It's supposed to be a starting point. But by and large, as I interact with that class of humanity, 
um, I've come to the realization that those people will never make more because they are not worth any more. And, and I'm just going to throw that incendiary statement out there and say, now, Miles, what were you saying? <laughs> well, as a, on the, on the slant of internationalization, shall we call it, um, this week was also an interesting week in that we all heard about these new ICBMs out of North Korea that can supposedly hit the United States. I don't know about you guys. That freaked me out. Did you guys react that way from hearing that? My immediate response was, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I, I, just don't <laughs> I guess we it. don't want to see it. <laughs> you know, at this rate, they're only going to be able to hit either Hawaii or California. And is that really a great loss to the nation? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oh, That's Seth at elementopi.com. S E T H at elementopi.com. Oh, man. <laughs> hey, come on. If that doesn't get some email, but Mark, come on. Everybody, just think Mark said it, and what would you say if he had said it? Oh, because yeah. I get a pass on everything. That's why I said it. Well, I mean, you know, okay, Phoenix, we're what, a six hour drive from the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we're, you know, we're close. No, we're not in that region. We're, we're close enough. And I guess maybe everybody on the West Coast probably went through this uh, uh uh-oh kind of mentality and in the back of your mind, and look, you know, yeah, I I try to be a couple of steps ahead of events if I can afford it. I'm thinking, wow, what would I do if all of a sudden I found that there was an incoming strike that was going to hit my city and I got to get out of Dodge real fast? Where would I go? What's my escape well, the natural escape route to me would probably be Mexico because it's, what, four hour, three or four-hour drive and I can get out and into a country which isn't annoying them, if you know, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but I realized, you know, I went to Mexico this week again to go and get my, my daughter's teeth. Uh, she had to get some wisdom teeth pulled, poor kid. But uh, so we ended up going down there to get it done. And... Um, you know, you go into Mexico and they don't have border protection to go in, at least not into the first 20-mile sort of tourist area. You can just freely go in. You Coming back, you have to go through U.S. immigration and customs. It's quite, you know, significant. You have to have a passport and go through all that. But going into Mexico, nothing. You just walk in. And um, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, man, if we needed a skate route down there at any moment, are we kind of like really pissing them off to the point where they're going to shut that border wall <laughs> if we get a strike on us? It's like, you guys, you you know, we didn't like what you were talking about with this whole wall thing. So you're stuck over there. We're not letting you in. It's not like, if oh. we bring our money with us. They'll be fine as long as we bring our money with us. I hope I hope that's the case. <laughs> but, anyway, you know, you, we're maybe this is the first time our generation, the, the, the Xers and, and, and beyond, have had that uh, Cuban Missile Crisis or the whole duck and cover, the Sputnik experience. This is the first time that a serious aggressor um, has had the the ability to, you know, seriously be aggressive. Uh, in our lifetime, you know, the, the, the Russian Cold War was a thing when we were kids, but we all knew it wasn't going to happen because, you know, the, the whole mutual assured destruction thing um, – you know, it wasn't like in the fifties when the when the Russians first got the bomb and everybody was sure they were gonna drop it and when they launched Sputnik and the whole space race, that sort of thing. Maybe now we're getting a sense of that because, you know, these North Korean guys um are nutbags. 
and there's no amount of mutual assured destruction that will make them not want to drop a bomb on us because at that point killing americans even if they die is a victory uh at least that's what the press uh uh, the story is uh, is that you, you you would people would have you to believe whether that's true or not I don't know I've never talked to a, uh, a an eel of any kind you know um, so uh, or I guess it's a Kim Jong isn't it Kim Jong Un Kim Jong Il yeah it's Kim Jong is their their last name their family name uh, anyway it, it's just a it's just the the wheel is turning the history is is echoing once again yeah I think. I think there's a sort of set of indoctrination that happens at most children who who were raised through that, that they're, uh, you know, part of their standard indoctrination is to treat America as kind of the great Satan and whether, you know, to them an ultimate uh, win in their lives would be to kill one of us. And as nasty as that sounds, it is in fact part of the way that they're educated. Um, there's been a lot of uh, stories coming out of countries like maybe the Swedes or the Brits who are able to go over there and do documentaries to some degree that come back with these sort of examples of textbooks that show this teaching as being part of their regular education. And uh, it is scary. It's very scary because at some point, you know, you just I guess maybe, yeah, I'm more West Coast than you guys, so I'm kind of closer to where the, the hot spots might be. But it is something that, you know, is a conversation piece everywhere you go around here. It's like somebody's worried about whether or not these guys just decide they want to impress their, their citizenry and they just fire a few of these ICBMs out. Uh, it's kind of scary stuff. I mean, that's true in one sense. But in another sense, the only reason he's able to hold on to the power is to, by convincing at least passively convincing his public that we're such a great enemy and they've got to do all of this. And so in one sense, continually showing the missiles failing, blaming it on American sabotage, but never getting to the point where they can actually strike back. I mean, I, I don't really know that they have the, the uh, wherewithal to do it. And I don't know if they would, because you know, he knows that we're not going to do anything as long as all he does is talk stupid stuff like that. And he's not going to do anything because he doesn't want us to do anything and kick him out of power. Well, yeah. Um, geopolitical stuff this week has been interesting, of course, but, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I only bring this up because I've been dealing with the, this internationalization issue from the point of view of, of this tax stuff that I had to go and jump through. And I started realizing there's so many <laughs> dysfunctional uh, geopolitical slash internationalization issues that we in the US are exposed to right now. Um, and look, you know, it's nothing we, three of us did, right? We haven't done anything. What do we do to deserve this? It's just that we may inherit. <laughs> we other, elected you know, the morons that, that well, put these, these things into practice. Yeah, yeah. we did nothing yeah. for so long. We allowed yeah. it to come to this. So I, really, we need to be taken out. We deserve it. <laughs> During our hiatus, I read a book called uh, The Dictator's Handbook, Why Bad Behavior is Almost Always Good Politics. Uh, and as you could tell from the title, it's a fairly jaded and cynical view, but it's a, it, it, um, there's a couple of scholarly uh, fellows uh, looking at political science and looking at history and describing if you want to be an effective leader, not necessarily a good leader, an effective leader, um, what, what are the things you need to do? And, you know, one of the first things is control the money. Uh, keep your coalition small 
and be able to pay that coalition. Uh, and you know, and at some point, uh, as coalitions grow, you end you end up having to forced into democracy because you're the group of people that keep you in power are big enough that you you have to do what's best for the public good. But if you're you know a small leader of a small organization, uh, whether that's the HOA the, that you live in or the PTA of your kid's elementary school uh, or a small Asian country, uh, the the rules all are, tend to be the same. And and one of them is take care of your own and make sure that everybody knows you're in charge. And if a way of doing one of those things is to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile, um, then it becomes the right thing to do, even though it's a terrible thing to do. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact that there would be no country left to rule after they did that may be the only thing preventing them. But uh, in, when, you, when you're in the case of, of uh, religious or ideological uh, mindset, sometimes that doesn't matter. There have been lots of times in history where, for ideological reasons, people have burned their own house down you know, uh, metaphorically speaking. And, and there's no reason, honestly, from, from my um, cursory view of, of global politics today, there's no reason to think that the leader of North Korea wouldn't burn his own house down just to make a, you know, a statement. Right. But threatening to strike at us without ever doing it is the best of both worlds. Right. Because you can hype it up and then you can show a failure and then that buys you a couple of more years because we've got to figure out this problem. And then you try to launch again and there's another failure and that buys you a couple more years. And then, you know, you set up some schlup in the family who's getting all uppity to be a traitor. And then, you know, they've infiltrated my family and I'm not going to take this. And you rush up the launch and you know and so it, it's great politics to to try and to blame you know and we're we're the biggest most powerful you know uh and again this is more so from a more true from a historical sp- perspective than it is today you know we're the biggest most powerful military nation economy in the world and so you know trying to fight us buys you brownie points because you're standing up for yourself so maybe if, if Mr. Trump wants to build a wall, it should be a wall of drones in the Pacific. <laughs> That'll help. But here, okay, so think about this one, right? If it's a Pacific target that's reachable, uh, let's say San Francisco, and he successfully is able to do some damage, even if it was just to a, Oakland or some smaller part of the city, but enough to, to do some sort of a strike that hits that. What would be the economic effect across the United States? Our economy would be destroyed. Because uh, short term, not it would destroyed, be a great, certainly weakened. It would be a great benefit to the United States because one, you talk about helping to bring. You know, one of the reasons that we're so fracturing as a country is there's there's no other country to stand up to us. You know, there's no. You know, we don't have Russia anymore, and China's more of a frenemy um, than anything else. And so, if somebody launched something that hit, okay, yeah, it would damage, but then short term bad, but long term you get a chance to clear out the rubble, rebuild, bring something better. You know, you're going to get huge grants and defense to make sure it never happens again. It could start an economic boom. Uh, you know, now nuclear changes it, but you know, if it's just a conventional payload, you know, that, that could start an economic boom that could last a decade. 
Not mm. saying it would, saying it could. And the whitest doves become hawks immediately after an attack. Uh, yep. So even if it was an ineffectual attack that took out, you know, some of the coastline and there were minimal uh, casualties, uh, Korea would be ended uh, within very short order, North Korea anyway. Um, I hope. I honestly don't know that that's true anymore. I mean, we saw that in uh, uh, 2001. Uh, suddenly the doves became hawks, but they quickly you know, went back to being doves again. So I, I honestly wonder if there might be a significant portion of the leadership in our country that might, you know, say instead of retaliation, let's see how, how we can understand uh, how he could do this and, and let's make sure that we can address the philosophical and, and ideological reasons and let's not punish the, the innocent people for the misdeeds of their leaders. Um, what, what we need to do is round all those people up and have a convention in Oakland right before they launch the missile. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that regardless of, of where you are or when you are throughout history, uh, the appropriate response to an attack like that is, you know, if they bring a, a, a knife, you bring a gun. If they bring a gun, you bring a cannon. Uh, if they um, damage uh, 10 miles of uh, un populated uh, coastland we turned their entire most populated city to ash i think that's the appropriate political response but i i may be uh, the last of a dying breed in that regard they have these um, icbm silos in arizona there were about 20 of them built in the cold war all of them have been filled in i mean the old ones they were cemented in uh, it used to be really popular that you could try and buy one for, I don't know, 100 grand. They were really cheap. And you'd get this cemented in nine-story deep, you know, thing where the missile was and all the attached buildings with the shock-proof walls and everything would all be part of the purchase. But it used to cost you probably a couple of million dollars to turn it into an actual residence. I'd heard somebody had taken one of them and turned it into a, a rave club or something. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> there's a few. Well, there's one left here that's uh, become a museum. It's in an area called Green Valley. Uh, if anybody ever comes to, it's south of Tucson. If anybody ever comes to southern Arizona and wants to do something that's really cool, I would suggest go and visit the Green Green Valley ICBM Missile Silo Museum uh, because in it is an actual uh, Saturn V rocket with a sort of a, a false fake warhead on the top. It's the same basic rocket that they use to send the Apollo missions out. So they're huge. I mean, but it's underground. You, you actually go underground and you walk up. You can touch the rocket. You can see the whole thing. They take you into the launch room. You can see this old 1960s technology with the, the you know, rotary phones and the old valve, you know, switches and everything. Um, and they walk you through a mock launch, uh, how, you know, the president have to call with these codes and how they have to look up the codes. And it takes two people to do it because the, there are two keys that have to be sort of turned at the same time. And one person can't physically reach both spots. So it has a cross check to make sure that, you know, and every, and they're going through this whole thing like it's a mock launch that we were going to, in this case, it was built to hit the Soviets, but, you know, and they constantly reiterate the whole concept of mutually assured destruction. If we shoot, you know we're all going to be dead. But we're underground here and we're in this kind of 
bunker, which is not likely to be able to be affected by an incoming strike and all this sort of thing. Anyway, you walk through the whole thing, you get really up close and personal with the whole launch process of how it works. And I guess maybe that's why this has affected me so much is because I've, I've been underground and I've touched the missile and I've seen the whole thing. And the, and the one thing that resonated in my mind that I remember going through this the first time was the guy uh, takes you, before you actually go down, they take you on the surface and he, he shows you what a nuclear warhead looks like. You actually see a warhead and he'll tell you, well, this is a 10 megaton warhead. And I didn't, you know, the numbers to me, I didn't realize what 10 megaton means. Well, in context, what they say is that these days on a nuke, we would put, you know, maybe a one megaton warhead on a nuke because our ability to target is so much better with GPS and with satellites and all the modern technology that we can target. We can hit a strike probably within three, four feet mm -hmm. from, you know, but if you're in a country that doesn't necessarily have that level of technology and you're in effect reverting back to what we had in the 60s and the 70s where we didn't have that level of targeting technology, the only way you can guarantee some form of efficacy on the missile is to put a 10 megaton warhead on it. Well, a 10 megaton warhead was designed to completely destroy end-to-end -end the entire city of Moscow, everything. And that was even if you got it within 50 miles or 100 miles of your destination, even if it was a few hundred miles out, you'll still destroy it. It's that big in terms of payload. And that is what I think these guys are putting on their missiles. It's not that they can Accuracy is not important. Right. You don't need accuracy if you can hit within 500 miles and destroy everything in sight. Just put more payload on the thing. Um, and that's scary. That's where we – they don't really even have to hit land. They could probably hit the ocean and still do enough damage to completely wash California into the ocean. Um, yeah, so anyway, I just put that out there as kind of scary stuff. Um, but I will say if you're a sort of a fan of history and you want to see what these missile silos look like, yeah, check that one out. It's really cool. So this is a weird transition. Uh, but it it's oddly appropriate uh, because there's a fellow by the name of Joshua Rothman who thinks that same level of apocalyptic outcome of North Korea launching a nuclear missile at uh, California um, is going to come from Amazon buying Whole Foods. You guys, if you haven't read it yet, you have to read this article. It's it it is weird like salem witch hunt kind of weird seth talk to us about it a little bit um dude i wasn't i, I honestly i thought we no i wasn't so uh <laughs> but well you know he is referring to this commercial and I, I don't know i just to me i thought the I don't really know what to say about this article. I just think if you want to it, this article is everything that is wrong with media today, because there is 5% information that Amazon bought whole foods. And then, you know, 
25% apocalyptic prediction, and then that leaves 70% to be totally political on how corporations, the only purpose of corporations are to help society. And I'm like, no, they're to make money, but you know, we don't want to, we don't want to bring much truth into this article. So yeah, it's, and of course it's from the New Yorker. So, you know, you know what you're getting, but picking up, picking up from the middle of, of the article, there's something horrible about this little video. Why do the inhabitants of this suburban home require a recipe from a pasta for pasta from a jar? Why can't they turn the lights down using their hands? If the ad were an episode of Black Mirror, they'd be clones living in a laboratory attempting to follow the patterns of an outside world they've never seen. And yet, this ad is not so fantastical, but descriptive. It's unsettling because it's an accurate portrayal of our new mail-order way of life, which Amazon has spent the last 22 years creating. It hasn't always been obvious that Amazon would transform the feeling of everyday life. At first, the company looked like a bookstore. Next, it became a mass retailer. Later, for some obscure reason, it transformed into a television and movie studio. Excuse me, television and movie studio. It seemed to be growing horizontally by learning to sell all kinds of new products. But Amazon wasn't just getting wider. It was getting deeper, too. It wasn't just selling products but inventing a new method of selling behind the scenes. It was using technology to vertically integrate nearly an entire process of consumption. This integration of Amazon's real product is is Amazon's real product. It's what you purchase when you become a member as Amazon Prime. According to some estimates, 80 million American households, more than 60% of the total, have Prime memberships. Uh, Sci-fi emphasis added by me. But wow, Uh, apparently Amazon is Big Brother, and this is proved by the fact that they just bought Whole Foods. And no other company in the history of human civilization has ever innovated the space they've been in before. Something that started with Amazon, Jeff Bezos is a freaking genius because he thought, hey, we're doing A, what happens if we try to do B? I mean, you know, granted, I don't like where the video heads because, you know, I'm more of a an anachronistic holdover of better days, in my opinion. But I could see you loving that house, Mark. Um, I just... I thought the article was crap. Um, I thought the <laughs> coverage was crap. And, you know... Amazon buying Whole Foods is probably going to um, hurt other businesses because there was um, Blue Apron launched an IPO like later that week. And by the end of the day, it was below the IPO price. So they're going to kill other businesses and probably Whole Foods as well has get some retail space out of it. So, you know, way to go, Amazon. And, you know, we're sheeple for following them. And I, I don't know. It was just a, it was just a stupid article. I'm glad I don't read the New Yorker on a regular basis. <laughs> you can afford to shop at Whole Foods these days, anyway. I mean, yeah. man, they're expensive. Yeah, I mean, and people are now going to be able to get their fat-free, soy-free, organic brain sprouts um, directly from their Amazon Echo instead of having to drive to the funky little hipster. Uh, revitalized neighborhood where there's a crack den right across the street. Um, I don't see how that changes the world. I think what this does is, you know, the whole food inventory of the retail space is going to be cut in half and it's going to become an outlet for Amazon. So when you go to buy your, you know, um, Burka Milt Himalayan out goat cheese uh carried only in their left hand down the mountain you're also going to be able to pick up everything else you ordered off amazon prime so now that interests me (laughs) 
screw two days if i could just fill up my cart and then drive by a whole foods on the way to work all right now you've sold me on it yeah i mean that it makes perfect sense i can see how this is a win for amazon um you know like i say it just it makes me want to move further out in the country where a car driving in front of my house goes back to be a weekly thing instead of a daily thing so um, Pick, picking up with the article, where will it end? At first, as Amazon added more building blocks to its toolkit, the world changed in intangible ways. Ordering music got easier. Packages arrived faster. Lately, though, the physical changes have grown more apparent. Already, we spend less time shopping in the physical world. Now, the disappearance of bookstores seems to be extending to retail stores. More generally, grocery stores, too, soon will be thinner on the ground. Along with the leaf blower and ice cream trucks, every the delivery van nosing into the driveway one after another are now a staple of suburban life. Oh, my God, the horror. It's easier to buy stuff. Ah! <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, Sears is the reason there's an Amazon used to the most popular book in america was the sears catalog and you would you know you would order stuff and it would either be shipped to you or you could go to sears and pick it up you used to buy houses out of the sears catalog and people did they were slow to transition to this weird thing called the internet and who's going to ever buy that we dominate the catalog industry and so they gave rise you know if sears had done this everybody would just be oh well it's sears and that's where my grandpa bought his long johns and that's where my dad bought his underwear and now that's where i can buy my man bun extension so it's just a logical projection <laughs> with with society but because this is a new company that has done something never been done before they've changed the way they do business oh, i didn't know companies could do that yeah. so sorry I'm, I'm trying my best to lay it on thick today guys i hope i'm succeeding I, I, it was a different podcast. I, I think it was one of the, the, um, twit podcasts. I can't remember which one, but, uh, they either quoted an interview or had an interview with Jeff Bezos, uh, and his thing, uh, basic, whew, I'm, I'm so chasing around this cause I can't remember the details of it, but the, the upshot was the goal of Amazon was to take a, a, a small chunk out of every transaction in the world. That's their goal. Let, let, let me have 1% of every transaction made in the world. That's audacious. That's a big, hairy, audacious goal. But imagine the billions in profits if you could just take 1% of every transaction. Just a piece of it. It doesn't have to come through me. It doesn't have to, to be from Amazon. Just let me have a piece of it in some way. Um, that's, a, that's a big goal, and I think they're on their way. Yeah, and not only that, but also that makes you more recession proof you know now you know when amazon was just a bookstore what happens if people didn't want to buy books well all of a sudden nobody's using their stuff but if they're in books if they're in regular merchandise if they're in food if they're in web services if they're in front-end hosting if they're in back-end storage then as long as there's an economy then there's going to be an Amazon and they don't care if there's a recession, people are still going to use them. If things go well, people are still going to use them. I mean, every, I mean, who, who among us wouldn't like to have enough savings and be like miles where we could get by, even if we didn't work, you know, we don't, where we didn't have to be a slave to our job. They don't have to be a slave to a perfect economy. They're going to live 
as long as there's an economy. So, you know, yeah, I, I don't like the direction the world or the way we're implementing the choices that are out there. But I mean, you know, I recognize the genius in them doing it and, you know, it, in one yeah. way, more power to them and in other ways, you know, it's uh, I don't know, maybe come on North Korea or something. I don't know. Well, here's the thing, right? I know Kim Jong-un listens to our podcast. I, do, I know he does. He, he lives for this, right? So I would say to him, when you're working out where to target that ICBM, let's go with Seattle. Because then you can get Amazon, right? <laughs> and Seattle's Microsoft. good. Yeah, and, yeah, and Microsoft. And Starbucks. Yeah, we hate them. And Starbucks. Hey, look, the triple whammy. If you want to target that city, please, I'm in Phoenix. I'm a long way from Seattle. A long, long, long way. Mark's even further away. <laughs> Seattle's really, really good, Kim. Go on. Go for <laughs> Seattle. And we won't say a thing. It's all on you. But listen, you know, you didn't hear it from us, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, people in Washington State. I didn't really mean that. <laughs> the hate mail will come. <laughs> uh, if you're going to blow something up, blow up a place where it rains nine months out of the year. Mm. You know, just saying. Yeah, yeah. Wait, That'll that's work. Georgia. Uh, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Seth, we did one of your news stories. You feel you feel okay about that? I, I was shocked. You, I, <laughs> I, I mean, come on. I didn't. You know, one of these days, I'm just going to put fake links up on all these, and it'll probably be the week you decide to do them. So, <laughs> they'll all be links to uh, Rick Astley singing "Never Going to Give You Up." <laughs> Never going to give you up. That's oh, okay. all. Uh, Rick rolled that, again. I'm going to do that on one of these show notes one day. Maybe the next time we have a, a, a show released on April 1st, every link in the show notes is going to be to that video. And I bet nobody <laughs> will notice. <laughs> Did you even know we have links, audience? Did you know that? Well, everything that we talk about, uh, well, if it's a linkable thing, uh, I put links on at elementopi.com. You could also go there and, and visit our our uh, ghost town of a forum. Uh, you might see a tumbleweed blow by hmm. as you do. Uh, that's where our audience gets together. Um, apparently we have no audience because uh, <laughs> it's been a long time <laughs> since there was a post other than spam in the forums. There are all sorts of things that could happen over at lmoop.com, including the contact us button right there at the top of the page where you can respond to Seth's incendiary comments or Miles's incendiary comments or my very polite and professional comments. <laughs> uh, these are, these are, you could do that by going to lmoop.com, click the contact us button up at the, at the top of the page. Be prepared to answer the world's hardest captcha. For example, questions like what plant grows in a cotton field? Uh, or what clothing article do you wear on your hands? Uh, these are difficult captchas, um, and and I understand that it, they may require some googling and some some encyclopedic knowledge to be able to answer them. But answer them. But that's the sort of things that we expect from our audience. And once you get to that, you then get a form that you can fill out. Fill out that uh, we'll send an email that gets priority in my inbox, so that you too can be right at the top, right up there with all my Amazon Prime uh, and uh, UPS uh, uh, delivery notifications. Uh, your messages will go right there at the top of my uh, inbox, and, and you can uh, leave your comment there. Um, you could also, if you're uh, so inclined, you could fire up your uh, command line 
uh, mail client. You could you could open Mutt and uh, you could send an email to geekrant at elementop.com. That goes to all three of us. It's a distribution list. Uh, maybe you've heard of those back in your uh, ancient uh, history of computing classes. Um, and that will go to all of us and we can read that. Or you can uh, dial 559 559- I am Opie, uh, and uh, answer, uh, leave a voicemail, and we'll play it right there on the air. But we're interested in hearing what you have to say. Uh, but also, the forums are out there. Hey, it's there. It's a thing. So having said all of that, um, Seth, what happened this week in history? All right. Mark, back on July the 11th, 1976, the last slide rule was manufactured. K&E produced its last slide rule, which it presented to the Smithsonian Institution. A common method of performing mathematical calculations for many years, the slide rule became obsolete with the invention of the computer and a smaller handheld sibling, the calculator. And I just want to point out, back in episode 279, we referenced when John Napier died in 1617. He invented Napier's bones, sort of like the beta of a slide rule. So from the late 1500s to 1976, darn near 400 years the slide rule or its direct ancestor was used in computing and all that came to an end back in 1976 mark and now back to you i recently watched this week i I didn't mention it uh uh, hidden figures uh the uh story about uh three black women who worked for nasa in the the oh yeah i still want to see that good movie excellent movie uh completely family friendly for all ages my eight-year-old watched this with us. She didn't get much of the math, uh, uh, but there was nothing offensive. It was just over her head. Um, but one of the things that struck me was that department of people at NASA were called computers because that was their job. They did math for a living. Um, and so in, in the staff room, you would have engineers and computers. Um, and then they, one of the story arcs in this is the IBM that came in. It wasn't called a computer yet. It was the IBM. So you had a, a department of computers. This person was a computer. Your job role is computer. And then the IBM was the machine that came along later. Um, hmm. I had I never really made that connection before, but at some point somebody had to to call the thing a computer for the first time. Uh, and I'm sure you know you could uh, you're, you go back to your seventh grade computer history uh, and you learned that the ENIAC and the EDVAC were the first computing machines, but they didn't call them computers. I don't know what they called them back then: adding machines, uh, computational devices. But somewhere along the way, a computer went from being a person who computes to a machine who computes. Um, and the slide rule, along with it, went away. My granddad had a slide rule. I used to watch him use it. Uh, it was pretty amazing. I didn't understand it, um, but now you don't need it. Now you have computers. You have calculators. Uh, and then there's actual real math where people put down marks on a piece of paper. Um, I've heard about that anyway. Uh, my, I make my kids do their math homework on paper. I, I hate paper. I am an anti-paper Nazi. If you try to hand me a piece of paper at the office, I'll be like, why? Why are you doing this? Send me an email. Send me a text. Surely... There's 900 ways you could deliver this that don't inquire, uh, require you scrolling um, a die on a yellow piece of paper and, and sticking it to my monitor. Come on. Um, but when we're doing math homework, I make my kids do it the long way, and then we check it on the computer because it's important to actually have some skills. Just saying. Yeah, that's a good idea. Totally agree with that. They hate Nazi. me for it. Yeah. And, and it often ends in <laughs> tears. <laughs> but, you know, if you learn the 
the thought, you know, if you learn how to do it before you get a computer, when you get a computer or a calculator, you know what to do. I remember in my high school math class, I was the last kid who had a scientific calculator. And because I was competitive, I got to where I could do the work on hand as fast as people could punch it in their calculator. So I had to learn what to do. Then once I got a calculator, it became a tool. It became a shorthand tool. So I didn't have to do all this other stuff rather than, you know, a salute rather than something that keeps me from learning because I'm just punching numbers in. So it's important that you learn the why, um, and you learn the how before you learn the shortcut, unless you're going to learn how it makes you feel. (laughs) That might be the most important thing to having to do your multiplication tables up to say 15 in your head. You might need to come up with like a, you don't want to do three pages, but if you could do three sentences on Twitter about how that makes you feel before you actually did it, that would probably be okay. Well, it might, it makes my children feel like they want to burst into tears because (laughs) that's, that's a rule at my house. You must be able to do multiplications squares up to 15 you must no 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 questions asked um and it's difficult but i quiz my kids on it all the time you like they'll ask me you know what's what's three times seven Uh uh-uh no you don't ask that question that should be a reflexive it shouldn't even have to go to the brain your spinal cord should be able to answer that question um when you can answer that without thinking i'll give you your tablet back (laughs) (laughs) what Uh, I'm sure I've told this story before, but I took a college trig class because I'm a nerd and I needed an A. Yeah. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> my my GPA was hurting and I needed an A, so I took a took college trig. Uh, first day of the class, professor wrote the, the equation for cosine on the board and said, this is the only equation you will ever need in this class. This equation will will answer every question in trigonometry. There's no derivation. There, there's nothing you can't do from this equation you can turn this equation into cosine you can turn this uh, it was cosine you can turn it into uh, to, to tangent you can turn it into to whatever you need to do it was uh and like you know typical first day questions will we have open notes for the test he pointed to the board this is the only equation you will ever need in my class uh we'll be able to will we be able to use the book he pointed to the board this is the only equation you'll ever need to use in my class and he was right everything he taught he taught how to go with with uh from cosine and i thought that was pretty amazing um, that's the kind of, that's understanding and not just, you know, writing stuff. Oh, that was, I remember in uh, I needed an easy A in college. So I took the college trig and my first day in class, he was like, you can't make a worse grade than you make on the final. And I was like, oh, let me but- see, I could, I could go to this class <laughs> or I could play intramural volleyball. When's the final? <laughs> and I got my A, helped my GPA. Yeah. Yeah, I was not the the ideal student. One of my classes I went to on the first day, they said uh, um, attendance is not mandatory. Uh, there are only all your grades will come from these four tests. Here's the four test dates. I didn't even finish that class. I left. I went back three, f- four other times on the four test dates. That was it. Not a good student, but uh, you know, I got through. But the college got your money. That's the important thing. So <laughs> it's the important thing. Doesn't matter if you learned. Did the college get your money? So. All right. Now, as I as I look uh, anxiously 
to the end of this show so that I can reopen, fill the oceans, and let my script uh, continue clicking at 20 oh. times per second. Seth, <laughs> tell me, uh, what, what do you have this week to lower my productivity, thus making you look like a better hiring option? All right, this is checkyday.com. So this is a listing of all the different holidays that are observed. If you go there today on June the 9th, call it the Horizon Day, observed June the 9th. Barn Day, which is observed the second Sunday in July. This week it happens to be on the 9th. Uh, Fashion Day, observed annually on the 9th. Those and other things, don't put all your eggs in one omelet day, observed annually on July 9th. You can also, um, you know, find other dates as well. But checkyday.com, you know, show this to your boss and just wow them with how what a great uh, denizen of the web you are. And, you know, see if that doesn't boost your career path right along out the door. Today is National No Bra Day. I'm participating, and I didn't even know. Um, that's amazing. Sometimes uh, people want nas- me to participate in that, but <laughs> that's a different oh story. Oh, my God. It, tomorrow is Teddy Bear Picnic Day. I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I occasionally will put on Facebook that today is National Makeup a Day Day, <laughs> and every time somebody says, oh, I didn't know that. So- Tomorrow, you can sing Do You Like Pina Coladas because it's National Pina Colada Day. And then ask them if they like singing in the rain. So, Well, I I can't go to work then. (laughs) (laughs) I have to observe the holiday. All right. This is crazy that A, these all exist, and B, somebody's tracking them. Uh, But yeah, I've always said every day is a national something day. It's National Sugar Cookie Day. And the podcast, well, by the time you let's see, um, what is the day? The day this comes out is the 12th um what day will that be when you hear this national Um, eat your jello day (laughs) barbershop music appreciation day um oh my gosh national pie day Day. yes sweet (laughs) my personal holiday simplicity day observed annually on july 12th so I might take that day off as well. Yeah. <laughs> we might have an opening on July 10th because that is National International Town Crier Day. So I don't think there's a lot of those left. They might take that one off and, you know, in well, like, or change to go it to, international. Yeah. International. Maybe it's a town crybaby day. And then there'll be lots of American oh, millennials like in that. But I'm Oh, and, and on that note of sarcasm and uh, just a little bit of ageism, um, let's just go ahead and end the show. Thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. Uh, we, we love to know what you have to say, so please do use the Contact Us button. Let us know what you think. Seth, Miles, as always, you were uh, far more professional and, uh, and knowledgeable than I pay you for. Uh, we appreciate it. We'll see you next week, everybody. And remember, pay for what you like. <laughs>